Okay, let's continue our story. <laughs> um, I suppose the, one, the first observation I'd like to start off with this evening in relationship to last night's talk, which was all about self, what it is and what it isn't, is just in our ordinary sense of the self, the way that we grasp after the notion of ourselves, whatever that might mean, is, have you noticed what a lonely business it is, being a self? It's quite a lonely thing, being a self. In English, we have this wonderful first-person pronoun, uh, which when you see it, it's I. I pity I haven't got a board. I love writing this up. I. Doesn't it look terribly lonely and stick-like? Desperate attempt to try and hold it together as well, and being an I. I almost think this is indicative of Western society. There's a desperate attempt by most people in Western society to hold themselves together as the I. To be something, someone in their lives. Touching on last night, again, trying to get some continuity of what's been said already, is that there is this search for identity of trying to become something uh, with the emphasis on the thing rather than the process. So there's not an openness to the process of what it means to be a self, but the desperate clinging to solidify oneself in some way, to almost substantiate yourself by becoming solid because of almost our airiness, the fact that we are not anything whatsoever. Just stepping outside the realms of Buddhist thought for a second, um, the French philosopher, existential philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, actually in his magnum opus, Being and Nothingness, actually reflects on this business of trying to become something because of, in a sense, being nothing. And I don't mean that in the sense of obviously not being here, but not being anything substantial at all. He said and I think this is very much in line with Buddhist thought, that actually most people were trying to turn themselves into things like tables and chairs. Because at least tables and chairs have identity, and tables and chairs don't change that rapidly. So there's this attempt to become solid, unchanging, with fixity within themselves. Now obviously... That attempt to substantiate ourselves, to make ourselves solid, is one that's bound to fail. It's something that almost is condemned to failure from its very inception. However, from almost childhood onwards, we're attempting to be something in this world. And I mentioned some of the roles, of course, that we play um, in this world, which we take seriously, not because they're not serious, but because we try to, in some sense, become those things. So we hold on to them desperately. Being this or being that, being your profession, being a teacher, being a parent, a mother, a father, a child, a student... 
all the time there's this attempt to establish an identity. And of course, it's one, as I've said, that's bound to fail. It's, it's something <coughs> which we can never ultimately cling on to because always these things are being stripped away from us. You know, we were once a child, that's gone. We were once a teenager, that's gone. And so on and so forth as we go through our lives. We take on roles, we take on professions, we take on positions. And each of these is being taken away from us all the time. Even if you reach the pinnacle of whatever it is. In power, in profession, whatever it is, it will ultimately be taken away from you. Because it's so often said, there's one thing certain which is death, one thing that's uncertain, when. So none of us ultimately have anything to cling to. So really, we're in this position of being ungrounded all the time, no matter how much we try to ground ourselves. So trying to be a self is a desperate struggle. It's a desperate thing that we're trying to be particularly when that I is being associated with one of the things I've spoken about. When we're attempting to create our identity through a role. And think how often depression arises when people have to retire and they feel they're nothing anymore. They have lost what they what they were. In a sense, they've lost themselves. Now, why am I painting this gloomy picture? (laughs) Because it doesn't have to be like this. The Buddha, as I've kept saying to you through all the nights which I've been speaking the last four nights, is trying to paint a realistic picture about who and what we are. To realise, of course, that... It's a sense of being before anything else. And that being is nothing. It's not static. It's not substantial. It's a process. Now, what does that mean in terms of us? That our lives, in a sense, are a project. That is what our lives are. They're a project. A project that's never at an end... And in some traditional Buddhist cultures, of course, it never ends even at death because there's something that's going on. Now, I'm not going to propagate that view this evening, but if you think about your life, that you're never at an end. And I mentioned this last night, until, in a sense, you're dead. So there is always this sense of becoming. However, in this attempt to establish identity, we, in a sense, metaphorically die before we're dead. We try to create that which is solid, substantial, unchanging, which is almost a death-like state, before we've even achieved it. And I've said it so many times in this room, but I'm so fond of this quotation, which is Benjamin Franklin, you know, Most people are dead by the age of 25, they're just not buried until 70. (laughs) 
you know, that is often the realism of the situation, that people have died, they've contracted, in other words, around roles and positions and anything else that can, in a sense, give solidity to their lives. Now, I'm not, of course, suggesting that the roles and anything else are not important. They are, particularly if they come with responsibility, as most roles do. But let's not make an identity out of them. Let's hold them more lightly. Let's see them for being what they are, transitory. And if there is anything that I suppose the message that really should be coming through loud and clear by this time is that everything is transitory. All compounded things are transitory, all compounded things are evanescent, strive on diligently, says the Buddha. In other words, in the face of that transitoriness. This constriction, this contraction that we often undergo, and really you have to examine this in terms of your own life, the way we contract around some particular dimension. And I've just given you an example, and bear in mind it is just an example of a role or an identity that we try to create for ourselves. We contract around that. We implode in a sense. And in a sense there is no outwardness. There is no movement out. Now there's a very good, very plain word for this. And often which goes with this I-ness this contraction of the I into this solid sense of self, it's called selfishness. One of the great diseases and malaise of every era, not ours. It's not particularly, I think, um, something new. It's something that's always there in the human condition, this degree of selfishness. But just reflect on selfishness as I suggested last night to you. Just reflect on it in your own lives or wherever you observe it with others. The selfish are very lonely. The selfish are cut off from others quite often. Think of, again, that contraction. That contraction is a movement away from others. In selfishness, and this is what mean this what this is what it means to be an I. Now, the Tibetans for this word actually have a lovely phrase for it, in which is really we would translate as ego, this egotistical state, and literally the Tibetan translates as the I as king, or the I as queen. You know, what I'd like to call your royal highness. Sorry about that. (laughs) But that that sense of elevation above others. Now this goes hand in hand with some of these states that I've mentioned where, for example, what we've been practicing this week so far, metta, has no room within. There is literally no room for it. There is no room, for example, in conceit, which goes with the royal highness. There is no room for metta. 
in the position of conceit. There is no room for it in jealousy or avariciousness, in that kind of stinginess that you get. If you notice what's occurring in most of the virtues or the wholesome states of mind that Buddhism speaks about and the Buddha directly speaks about again and again and again and again throughout the Pali Nikayas, is that there is a breaking down of this isolation. I started off with saying the I is a very lonely business. Being that I in the ways I've described and they are just examples that I've given. However, when we start to think in terms of these wholesome states of mind, we immediately see that rather than contraction, there is expansion. There is a movement outwards. Whereas, just think about it. I mean, it doesn't take a, you know, it doesn't take a great deal to envisage what's going on. For example, in stinginess, you always see somebody going like this you know, when they're trying to hold that unto themselves, or in selfishness in general. They're contracting, pulling everything towards themselves. It's for me. It's mine. It belongs to me. The opposite is implied, obviously, in things... Let's take one of the basic Buddhist virtues. In fact, in traditional cultures, the basic virtue is generosity. And why is it a virtue? It's a virtue simply because it's a counteraction to that notion of contracting. It's expansive. It works on whittling away the slow, death-like constriction of the eye. That's what it's doing. It's breaking that down. It's making, forcing you to make a movement outwards into the world. You've heard me speak about metta. What's the characteristic of metta? The characteristic of metta is adhesiveness. Joining. Contacting. This is, you know, hopefully what you're starting perhaps to get even a glimmer of, and I don't mean a massive feeling of matter at this stage, that's not going to happen. But just a feeling or a glimpse of this actually takes you into contact with others. This feeling. It's also spoke about that, for example, that meta has a, a moistness to it. The moistness of the heart. You know, so the heart is soft and moist here, rather than in its opposite, you know, in the state of adosa, or sorry, of dosa, of hatred, of aversion of things, then it's constricted, it's dry. The heart is dry. It has nothing to give. It's not moist. It's not supple. And the same with loba, you know, with greed as well. So in each case, and particularly you will see this when I start to talk about karuna, compassion, the flower that grows out of the soil, the beautiful flower that flourishes in the soil of metta, 
in the soil of affection and in, in the soil of affection and kindness. It grows out of it. There is a breaking down, an even further breaking down, of the isolationism. Now, isolation, and I really do hope you think about this, isolation is one of the major diseases of our era, in the sense of people feeling isolated and alone. We have these vast conurbations in Britain with people terribly and desperately lonely. Often, not always, but often because of their own constriction. Often because of their inability to get out of themselves. People try to do this in desperate measures, actually. Um, The Greek word for getting outside of yourself, you all know this because there's a drug virtually named after it. It's called ecstasis in Greek. To get outside of your own skin, literally. It's the origin of the word ecstatic, ecstasy. To get outside of yourself in some way or another. So the proliferation, for example, perhaps one of the manifestations of the attempt to get outside of yourself is drink and drugs and the sorts of things that people use as desperate measures. One can't see this in a sense other than an attempt to contact, an attempt to get outside of this constriction, this boundedness. So rather than look at it as a condemnatory thing and wag your finger moralistically, you can see that what's going on in this is a desperate attempt to be human, a desperate attempt to fulfill the role and the meaning of what it means to be human, no matter how misguided most of it is. And how destructive, ultimately, of course, a lot of it is. So, in a way, the self is a pathology. The self, in not seen as selfing, as process, open-ended, ever open to change and movement, being nudged in one direction or another, depending on what, in a sense, we're inputting into it, i.e. the development, the nudging in the way of the unwholesome or the nudging in the way of the wholesome. In the unwholesome, it's leading to this constriction that I'm speaking about. In the wholesome, it leads to an opening out onto the world. So there's a movement away from the isolation of the prison house. The prison house mentality. And I I don't just merely pluck those words out of the air. The prison house mentality, I think we see often, particularly in Britain, I'm not sure whether it's quite so true in other cultures, but certainly in Britain, with people hoarding themselves and barricading themselves into their houses with their possessions and their selves. That's often the case and often of course as well this increases with age and it increases with fear too as the fear mounts the retraction from the society of others often becomes greater whether that fear is real or imagined and most of it is imagined 
the fear of what might happen, not of what actually will happen, but of what might happen, is always futural. Fear cannot exist really in the present moment. It's always directed towards a putative future. So in the name of that fear, in the reaction to that fear, there becomes this, again, constriction, contraction. However, there is an attempt, of course, in this contraction to try and build something substantial out of it, to build a self with value and importance. And again, there is nothing in the way I'm saying that's condemnatory about this. This is, again, another attempt to be human, to try and fulfill our potential of being human in this world. So we erect a self of some form, like that I. However, we do it in such a way that we build our walls on shifting sands and nothing that we build can ever last at all because the ground that we've built it on is changing continuously. It's insubstantial. It's like as if we are clutching after water and it just flows through our hands. So, what is the antidote to all this? The antidote is to find ways of being in contact, contacting a world, being in touch, and being touched as well. I'm using that metaphorically and literally here. The truth of our embodiment being one of being literally touched and touching. Without that, again, we're isolated. And we feel that loneliness desperately. Now, the self can be lived as an open project, as an open process. It can be lived as something which is not contracted in on itself in the ways that I've suggested. And the ways to that are through metta, karuna, joyfulness, equanimity, as well as a whole host of other virtues. I'm just concentrated on those because that's where we are this week, examining those. (coughs) All of them are about contacting people. I suggested at one of the meditation sessions the other morning, and I don't know how many of you picked up on it, that metta isn't just about sitting on cushion, having nice thoughts in your head, or even not getting nice thoughts in your head, but trying to get nice thoughts in your head, even if they're not happening at this stage. But actually, metta is really out there in our speech. How we speak to others. Do we speak? And this is a question. This is not you know, kind of not fait accompli, saying, no, you don't. It's really for us to examine each and every one of us in terms of our speech, whether it reflects some understanding of metta, of affection and kindness and gentleness. And that doesn't mean it has to be sloppy. Let's not get, let's not get all sort of terribly new agey about this. It doesn't have to be sloppy. But is it reflective of, for example, wisdom? Understanding, understanding of both of our condition, the speaker and the one who's being spoken to. 
is it reflective of that? Or is it reflective of myself? Because all too often, all we hear in speech is the I being said again and again and again and again. And I joked about it last night with the, the New Yorkers when I said, you know, that's enough about me, what do you think about me? <laughs> yeah. That's very much often what we're, in a sense, we're trying to elicit responses about ourselves from the other. What do you think about me? I always feel sometimes when when I hear these conversations, even when I'm trapped inside them, it's a bit like being trapped, any of you who know this playwright, being trapped inside a Harold Pinter play. (laughs) Harold Pinter plays are very notorious for people speaking at each other but not to each other. They really, particularly the early ones, there's very little in a sense of dialogue. There's a lot of talk but there's no dialogue going on. And the dialogical relationship can be a meta-relationship. A relationship of care. A relationship even of exploration. And that's one, one very important dimension. And it connects immediately, of course, with... It connects immediately with right speech. One of the categories in the Ennobling Eightfold Path. Right speech, speech which isn't harsh and isn't divisive and isn't false and isn't just merely chatter or gossip, but speech which is attempting in some way to connect in some real way with the other. Now, this is not to dismiss, for example, the ordinary casualness of speech which can help somebody to relax or help somebody to be in a less tense way. It's not to dismiss that at all. But that can't be the totality of what speech is about. So when we talk about bringing meta to our speech, we're talking about the real attempt to connect in real dialogue. A dialogue that isn't about you and it isn't about me. Certainly, hopefully, not about me when we're speaking, but can allow the other to be. Now, I don't know how well you're following all this. You know, you'll have to tell me when I ask if there's any questions. But really, speech itself should help the other to disclose themselves rather than contract into themselves again. Yeah. How often, and again, this is a question to ask yourself, How often have you had that conversation where you've helped another to disclose themselves, to be, and that's all I mean by disclosure here, not to tell you their deepest secrets, but just to be. Or, for example, for yourself to be allowed to have been in the speech of another, even in the gaze of another, to be really seen, to be really heard. Now, I don't think I'm talking about anything that's extraordinary here or metaphysical or anything. This is just about being human. How to be truly human with all its potentiality or how to be rather distorted in 
what our potentialities might be, how we can be entrapped. Let me just want to mention one other thing before I move on into a slightly different area, but related, is that, of course, one of the other things that we really have to watch as well in terms of, again, a question for ourselves, nothing else. In other words, these questions, in a sense, really should be heard in the sense of mindfulness, of bringing mindfulness to speech, mindfulness to gesture. We all know the difference between open-handedness and the closed fist, how much that is reflective of different states of mind. How often are our gestures reflective? In traditional Buddhist statuary, in iconography, for example, they have these wonderful things which they call mudra. Mudra are, if you like, gestures of awakening. That's probably the closest you could get to any way of describing it. They're gestures, in other words, which are reflective of wisdom and compassion. Now, without idealising this, we don't want to romanticise this, what I'm saying is that for metta to be present, it has to be present in body, speech and mind. Not just in our minds. Yeah. D.H. Lawrence once said he had wonderful thoughts about people sitting on a mountain, but not when he was with them. So in other words, it wasn't reflective of being with people. You you can think these wonderful things, but when it really comes down to it, it comes down to how, in a sense, I embody that metta. So metta is an embodied feeling. It's not a head feeling. It suffuses the body when we have that feeling. And I'm sure you've all had it at times. Let's not, uh, let's not romanticize it again and put it off, you know, metta is for the arahants and metta is for the Buddha and everybody else. No, it's not. It's for everybody. If you bring mindfulness, awareness, so sati, mindfulness, is the eye, <coughs> is the eye which guides the metta. It's that which brings wise attention to our ways of being rather than the unwise constricted attention when I focus on me and think about that again I don't want to really take you too far back into what I've been saying but think about that constriction of the me when it's me and it's me and it's me and it's me and perhaps if that means just a little bit vague. There might be a little bit of room left for you, but not a lot. There was a wonderful cartoon, um, which I've often talked about, but uh, for those who haven't heard it, it might be indicative. And it was a wonderful cartoon because it illustrated so much often about human relationships to me. And cartoons sometimes are wonderful at encapsulating these things. You know, Buddhism can be found anywhere, actually, in literature, in poetry, in music. Um, and I, by, by Buddhism here, I mean the Dharma. It's not, you know, it's not the prerogative of this strange Eastern thing, you know, which happens to go by an ism in the West now. Uh, but it can be found anywhere, and it can be found in cartoons as well. 
And this particular one, I think, was very indicative of the inauthentic human relationship. Um, it was a woman and a man sitting at a table, and it was obviously a dinner table because there was a you know, candle in the centre and a bottle of wine and plates and everything else. And he's leaning across the table talking to the woman, and there's kind of a lot of squares, you know, loads and loads and loads of them. I forget how many there were, but there's lots and lots of them. And he's leaning across the table, and above, each, above his head in each square there's a bubble. In each of the bubbles, it goes, I, I, me, me, I, me, <laughs> like this. And it goes on like this for ages and ages and ages. And then finally, obviously, he's finished what he's saying. And he leans back in the chair. And the woman then leans across the table and the bubble appears above her head. And she goes, me. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> As you can see, <laughs> again, Harold Pinter plays. <laughs> Nobody talking to each other, only talking about themselves. So, the kind of bit I want you to leave you with just on this part of the talk this evening is is that we really need to perceive our constriction and our opening out. And sometimes that opening out really has to be against all the grain. And what I mean by that is that it has to be, in a sense, against some of the overwhelming inclinations which are there because they're still rooted in greed, aversion and delusion. Sometimes the only way to start to break the patterns is to start to do something different. Now, in a sense, that is what you're doing, just doing this practice in metta. In a way, it's slightly behavioural as well. It's not actually physically doing something, but mentally, behaviourally, we're turning our thoughts against the natural grain and turning them out towards another. That's what I talked about a sort of reconstructing the other night. We're actually turning around, turning towards others, against all the natural inclinations, because I want to feel, oh, yes, it's really me, I'm feeling sorry for myself, you know, or whatever. You know, I'm kind of sending it up a bit, but often it devolves on ourselves. But you know, sometimes, as the philosopher Heidegger once said, a wonderful expression, he said, we're most ourselves when we're caring for others. That's when we're most ourselves. Except we somehow misidentify being ourselves as being trapped in this carapace, in this shell, this prison that we construct for ourselves with our likes and our dislikes and everything that goes with that. All of that stuff. With our possessions and all the ways that we entrap ourselves here. And our possessions can be such traps. Um, it's very interesting in the Tibetan language, um, for example, when you purchase something, particularly a Dharma object, um, when you purchase it, you don't own it. You've paid a ransom fee for it. See, it's only been ransomed to you. <laughs> you know, so you don't actually own it. And I think that's very nice because this notion of ownership the mine is very, very, very sticky. Very sticky. 
And just think of the world of difference that little word makes, mine. Now, we might have two identical objects. You, know, you and I, we might have identical things. You value your beautiful object and I value my beautiful object. Yours gets broken and I couldn't care less. <laughs> mine gets broken. Just think of the world of difference. I'm painting a very gloomy picture, but deliberately. As you probably see, I'm trying to send it up a little bit for us to get to see the picture, because sometimes you just have to exaggerate just to get a glimpse of what is actually going on in ordinary human experience. Sometimes it is as extreme as I've painted it. But when we start adding these words, I, me, mine, and taking them terribly seriously, attaching ourselves to them, then life constricts. It contracts. The Buddha, as almost a pattern of repetition that goes throughout a lot of these suttas in the Pali suttas, in the Pali discourses, says, you know, for example, in relationship to what is occurring in your mind, what's coming up, what it is, let alone what's external, this is not I, This is not me, and this is not mine. Three very simple phrases, which can be so useful practically when we we sense that feeling, that emotion, which we are identifying ourselves with and contracting around in that sense of self. And, And remember, often we don't feel this really solid sense of self except in these very strong emotions. You know, I want it for mine. I want it for me. Yeah, that kind of, again, contracting back on ourselves. Yeah. Holding on to something. Or a strong emotion. Yeah, I feel angry. It's all devolving onto me. Yeah. However, we can start to undermine that sense of ownership here. Just with these little phrases. It's not I, it's not me, and it's not mine. It doesn't automatically dissipate, of course, (laughs) but it's a reminder to you of the way that we hold on. Now, I'm going to say a lot more about this. In fact, I'm only going to talk for a few more minutes and open it up to questions. That, remember one of the phrases I said the other night? Everything is burning, says the Buddha. Everything is burning. Everything is aflame. Everything is aflame with greed, aversion and delusion. The whole world is burning. I also said, look around. It doesn't seem to be too far-fetched. It might be a little bit of Indian hyperbole, but it's not so exaggerated that everything seems to be aflame with these things. No matter what culture it is, it has different expressions. However, imagine this. We're pouring, pouring petrol onto the fire. Not only is it burning, but we're stoking it up continuously. Now there's a little Pali Sanskrit word which is used, actually usually translated as attachment or grasping. And this word attachment or grasping, which obviously only arises in relationship to a self, one of the 
other meanings of this word, which is for those who are interested in, in Pali language and the few words I've thrown out over the week so far, this word is upadana. upadana. Um, it's usually translated, as I say, as attachment or grasping. This word actually has a connotation of fueling a material process. Pouring petrol on your fire. So not only are you a flame, you keep your flame stoked up. You keep yourself burning. What these practices are aimed to do is not only get you out into the world, into real contact. So the metta, the karuna, etc. are there to get you into contact with others to really to be with others, to learn to be in the sense of being as opposed to all the things I mentioned last night, even this evening. The attempt to create identity, the doing, all of these things that we solidify ourselves around is to get you out into the world, to contact, to be with others This is the movement we're making when we move into so-called compassion, which is really much more of a being with others, a being for others in this notion of compassion. Being for and being with. As opposed to this isolation that we can feel So compassion and metta and eventually, of course, joy and equanimity is there to be with others, to really be, to fulfill this potential that's often spoken about and and reiterated again and again and again. Almost, it doesn't matter what tradition it is. You see it particularly, it's emphasized in Mahayana, but it's there in in the early tradition as well. The wisdom and compassion as being that which is our human potential. Understanding, probably, insight is a better word for wisdom. Seeing into the condition and being able to see it clearly. As opposed to the blindness of the unawakened state. Remember I spoke about this. Not enlightenment, but the awakened state or the unawakened state. So what are you really trying to do in this movement? What are you trying to do in these practices? And I'm going to finish off on this. You're trying to wake up. To wake up to your full potentiality. And it seems so terribly sad whether there is anything like rebirth or any of this stuff that the tradition talk about. It seems terribly sad to me that, that we don't give it our best shot in life, you know, to become or have the potential or fulfill that potential that we're given at birth of the possibilities of compassion, a really being with and for others, and the insight and the wisdom that goes with that, rather than be constricted and devolved and avaricious, centered on self, 
fading away, disappearing into our own little narcissistic haze. These are the two options. I'll finish that. Okay, well, I don't know if there's any questions. <laughs> Comments? Meg, yeah. You talked about your beautiful thing and somebody else's beautiful thing mm-hmm. and the difference of whether one got broken. The problem is when you do expand and screw into um, being with everyone's beautiful thing, it can be almost permanent agony when Well, that's why I say that not only is it compassion, you know, and compassion doesn't have to be that permanent agony. You know, it's a feeling with, but it's not feeling identical to the other. It's a feeling along with, is probably the best translation. But it's tempered by understanding. And so, for example, the understanding of, trans- <coughs> the understanding of transitoriness that doesn't lessen grief. Let's not say we're writing out grief and making it sound like, you know, we're not grieving. You can grieve, but it doesn't have to have attachment to it because of the understanding of the fundamental nature of the way things are. So when we start to develop insight, real insight into the way things are, together with these softening qualities such as the lessening of the self through compassion, the lessening of the self through metta, it doesn't have to be that agony that you're speaking of. It's not, in a sense, feeling identical to the other. It's feeling for the other. This is the difference, I think in this instance. If we're merely, I'll just say this final word, if we're merely feeling the same as, how can you help? There can be no movement, there can be no helping. Yet this feeling for and feeling with another allows help as long as it's guided with insight as well. So it's necessary to develop two qualities hand in hand. One without the other, it can be, you know, one can be quite cold, just mere insight, and the other can be quite you know, agony or sloppy, actually, the other thing, without that wisdom guiding it, that insight guiding it. So that's my response to it. Intellectually, it's not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It depends on the model that you're working with. So theoretically, I don't think I'd have 
Well, I mean, it's as simple as, um, and as complex as, (laughs) let me do the simple bit. It's really, it is, as I say, in a sense, it's a behavior. It's a mental gesture that we're engaging in. Just like, for example, if I want to know what generosity is, give. Start, Start to give away something. be it friendship be it material things engage in it and see how it feels because actually a lot of that stuff will not come naturally it will always be initially head stuff I know it's a good thing to do but I don't feel it I don't necessarily feel generous I don't necessarily feel kind so you engage in a gesture. Yeah. And that, as I think even contemporary neuroscience will say, will sometimes set up the relevant brain states you know, by continually doing it. So it's a kind of reprogramming process that we're engaging in. So it's exactly the opposite way around to the way that we often... It's the, the opposite way around to the way we often think in the West, which is you've got to have the, the real authentic feeling in order to do it this is saying you could wait the whole of your life for that to arise so engage in it do it anyway I had this brought home very much once with I've said this story quite a number of times again in this room but I had this brought home once with um, a student who was complaining to a particular teacher and going you keep telling me to be compassionate I don't feel compassionate he said feel compassionate what's that got to do with it just behave compassionately. <laughs> you know. I remember Scott Hepworth who was talking about a man who said, I don't love my wife anymore, what should I do? And he said, love her. So I don't know, what should I do? It's the same thing, isn't mm. it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, that's right. So in other words, it's this turning on a head, often this myth of, I don't know, myth of authenticity that we often have in the West. I can't do something unless I authentically feel it. Now, as I joked about it and said, well, you can wait the whole of your life for that authentically to arise. So what you're engaging is an as-if at this stage. You're constructing, you're moving, you're, in a sense, behaving in a certain way. I suppose what I'm struggling with is that in a way I sort of like, I think I feel it, but I don't feel it like I think I should feel it. So it's something I'm yeah. opening the heart and, and that feels like that would be a physical, you know, what they call an embodied thing. So yeah. Feel it where you feel it at the moment. Let's get the idealism out of it about whether the heart's going to open and I'm going to have this great gush of 
meta flowing through me. Let's get out, let's toss that out the window. Feel what you feel at this moment, but still direct your thoughts with meta towards others. It can be, for example, I'm directing my thoughts with meta, but I'm feeling irritation. Feel it. That's what's going on. But it doesn't mean to say that it necessarily is going to be antithetical, ultimately, to the development of meta. It can be just resistance coming in. But acknowledge it, see it, whatever whatever is happening. Some vagars classes. Buddha Gosha called the Brahma Viharas the most immaculate attitude we can have towards beings. Mm. And so, you know, maybe the thinking of it as an emotion maybe gets in the way because that means we yeah. feel it very strongly. It's an intention or an attitude. It's a direction of, actually, the best translation of it is a direction of mind. Right. It's an attitudinal direction that you have. I mean, this is part of the problem, of course, in the relationship, as you well know, between English and these ancient languages. They don't map on automatically. And when we start talking about feeling, well, that's not exactly what's meant in, in the original languages. There is no word for emotion. It's more of these attitudes of mind, you know, the way that you turn your mind in this instance. However, sometimes I think they are corresponding to what we feel as emotions. The attitude can be there even when the emotion isn't. That's right. Yes. Sometimes it will connect with that and sometimes it will be absent. But you can still direct your mind in that way. I was defining it in the sense of the way that Jenny was adding her comment, which is really that rather than emotion, actually the word in the original Pali and Sanskrit really means more of an attitude of mind, a direction of mind, than anything else. Because there is no real word in, in Pali and Sanskrit, well, there is in Sanskrit, but Pali, there isn't really a word for emotion. I mean, there's lots of different things that almost correspond to emotions in Sanskrit. Can we just go back to the saying, the saying of the of the phrases? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I heard you say one time that um, saying the phrases is actually, even if you're not feeling, generating any feeling, is is still. Beneficial. Yes. But I thought you said earlier in the week that it's no good just saying by rote because mm-hmm. then you're not going <laughs> to. It's not going to really have any sort of an effect. That's right. That's because saying them by rote. What I mean by saying them by what I mean by saying them by rote is more like you know, may all beings be happy. May I be happy, may you be happy, may we be happy, you know, this kind of thing. Where you're just saying them one after the other. That's what I mean by rote saying. If you're, saying them, if you're putting effort into, into saying them, and you're saying them, you are being mindful when you say them, That's right. but you're not feeling like anything's really happening, that's still beneficial, yeah. that's what you're saying, rather it's, than just, yeah. 
because it's directing the mind in a particular way. And how I mean that, let's take you know, the first phrase, whether you've changed it or not. You know, take, take, well, let's just take the second one because it's a nice one. Actually. I prefer that. You know. May I, you, be, have happiness and its causes. You know, and rather than immediately pass on to the next one, dwell with it. Does it have any resonances or is it just, just perhaps a nice quiet feeling? There might even be some bodily sensation arising in it. This is in a sense is helping. Remember I've used this phrase and I've tried to, tried to talk a little bit around it, you know, of listening to it. And what I really mean by that is being responsive to what's happening when you utter that phrase. It might be nothing. It might be really nothing. But there might be something. There might be quiet. There might be an echo. There might be some resonance that's coming through. Now, all of this, in, help, in a sense, is helping to direct the mind in a particular way. And therefore, is, in a sense, behavioural. Whereas I think the repetition, just going one after the other, one after the other, it's, you know, it's just like saying prayers, you know, in, a, in, a, in the worst possible sense of the word. You know, whereas this is is cultivational. It's cultivating. You know, it might be just at this moment you're not growing anything. You know, let's, let's, use the, let's use the metaphor a little bit further. You know, the, the actual flower of meta hasn't started to grow or whatever, whatever plant you want to visualise it as, um, but I'm just tilling the soil at this moment in time. Yeah. I might go on later to start putting some fertiliser down, some manure into it to help it to grow, but it's still not appearing yet. But that's what I'm doing. I'm laying the ground. I'm telling so that's what I mean by it still having an effect. Which is quite (laughs) (laughs) long-term. Yep. (laughs) Let's put it this way. I'm not holding out any promissory notes for the end of the week. (laughs) Collect your meta-certificates at the door. (laughs) No, I mean, seriously, it is a long-term project, yeah. I mean, really, a retreat like this is to help, particularly if you haven't done much meta practice and, and the others. I mean, obviously, we've been concentrating on meta so far. But in a way, this is introducing you to it and hopefully showing you a little bit of the power of this practice, you know, a little bit. It doesn't actually take much longer, I would say, than... 10 days, 3 weeks or so, to start to then really begin to see what it's really about. Yeah. Yeah, that's, but, you know, these are short periods. And it's a, it is, I mean, oh, the whole of Buddhism is a long-term project. That's why I said it can sort of serious, seriously alter your life. <laughs> and that's what it's meant to do. Yeah. But hopefully you see glimmers in it. You know, even if it's only the, you know, the glimmering of quietness at this stage. Or just the movement, as I was suggesting to some people today, just the movement when you're going out in ordinary life where suddenly, instead of that automatic reactiveness, there's perhaps just a little bit more calm and kindness because you've oriented the mind in this way. Now, your other patterns might snap back in fairly quickly, but you might just get that glimpse. There isn't that automatic tendency to do that. That's real meta. It's not meta on the cushion. That's the real meta. Mm-hmm. Would you, I mean, would you do a day on each person here? Yeah. If you were carrying on at home, would you 
No, you don't. You don't. You don't have to. I mean, I mean, what what I tend to recommend is that you can do a day on. You know, if you if you're doing it throughout the week, then you do a morning on yourself, the next day on the benefactor, the next day, so on and so forth. When you start to get really familiar with it, when you really start to have entered into the spirit of it, even if you're still not getting the, you know, the, this powerful thing that everybody's looking for, <laughs> but even if you're still not getting that, you can start to condense it down so that a whole session can contain all of the figures that we're doing. Now, you might have to extend the session to over 45 minutes, I think, personally, to actually really encompass it properly. But you can start to get it all into one session. But personally, and again, this is a very personal thing, and it's partly to do with my training, because this is the way I was trained to do it. I prefer to do it in these, you know, let's take it one at a time, rather than try and cram them all into one session. Yeah, just one more. It is indeed. And in fact, I've said this already. I think all of these, what I call wholesome states that I've been talking about, are really all there already. And you've exhibited them. You've engaged in them. You've received them. You just haven't probably done them that often in this way. Without self being attached. With such clarity, that's right. Or without self being attached in some way to it. But they're there. You, you, you know, all of you have touched calm at some time, even if it's only when you've concentrated on that thing that you really love doing. Yeah, calm is there. Because it's part of your mental continuum. As is, you know, as is meta in the sense of being non-hatred. It's there in your continuum, in your mental continuum. It's just that it's imbalanced, of course, towards the more aversion side. You know. So we are actually growing, if I'm again using that metaphor. And I do like it. I think it's a lovely metaphor of growing what's already there. What you're doing is you've got the seed there in terms of the, the mental factors which are associated with consciousness. And what you're doing is encouraging it to grow you know, by keep turning your mind to it. You know, the tilling of the soil, I was saying to Nick here. Keep tilling your soil. You know, keep fertilizing it, keep manuring it, and eventually it will start to mature properly. But occasionally it will spring up just like a weed. <laughs> you know, it will just come up, and there it will be. You know, I can't push these metaphors too far, but hopefully you can see that. They're there, they're definitely there, and I, I really do, do agree with that. That's absolutely right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.